Welcome to Essential Ethics and our highlight series from the 2021 12th National Paediatric Bioethics Conference, which was brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre in September 2021. The conference theme was Deciding with Children. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. In this session, we shift the discussion from the role of the child in medical decision-making and from the role of the clinician in medical decision-making to consider the role of the parent. Specifically, we pose the question, how should we respond when parents exclude the adolescent in medical decision-making? To help us consider this problem, we're joined by two of the world's leading paediatric bioethicists, Professor Lainey Ross from the University of Chicago Coma Children's Hospital and Professor Doug Diekema from the Truman Katz Center for Paediatric Bioethics in Seattle. We're also joined by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Center. The responses to our question might surprise you and what follows is a lively discussion about the role of parents in the lives of their children and some cultural differences in paediatric practice between the United States and Australia. Settle in, strap in, it's a great session from the conference. The case is about Kira, 15-year-old girl who wants a COVID vaccine. She has no underlying health conditions. She's a keen runner, wants to keep competing in inter-school sports programs. Uh, she's strongly in favour of vaccination. She hates lockdowns. She wants to be able to move about and continue her running, get back to school regularly, and she thinks vaccination's the best strategy. But Kira's mother is opposed to the COVID vaccination. She worries that not enough is known about the long-term consequences. She doesn't trust the science. She believes that the community is only being told half the story. And she's been refusing to allow Kira to make an appointment. Um, so we've we've put this in in a broadly in a GP type setting, uh, but it could be that she makes her way into into a vaccination clinic in a hospital. But see, she turns up to your clinic and you're the clinician who's got, who's seeing her. So the question I'm interested in uh, posing to each of you is is should you as the clinician give the COVID vaccine to Kira? without her mother's approval? And secondly, can you or should you go against her mother's express wishes? <laughs> so what's what's your first reaction to that? Lainey, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, thank you very much. This is a challenging one. It's a challenging one because we're in the pandemic. Despite that, and, and so I really want to give Kira the vaccine, just like I want to give every child the vaccines, whether it's for measles, mumps, rubella, test, tetanus, pertussis, polio, et cetera. Uh, but I don't have her permission. And at least here in the United States, uh, parents have to give permission or touching this child would be battery and assault. So I'm not going to be able to give it to her without her. So that's the legal answer. Yeah. So morally, I want to. Morally, I think she's saying the right thing. But now let's look at it from, from Kira's mother's perspective and why, why I actually have a moral obligation to listen to her mother. At least for now, and this is a, partly a cop-out, I'll admit, um, we have an, it's only under EUA for children under the age of 16, which means that it's experimental use authorization. It hasn't been fully FDA approved. 
So when Kira's mother says it's experimental or we don't have enough information, until the FDA gives it full approval, uh, mom sort of has a point. The, uh, we just passed, uh, alleges, the, the FDA just gave permission, a BLA, for the uh, above 16 years old. So let's pretend Kira's going to turn 16 next week. And so um, let, let me not be able to use my cop-out. And then yes, the question yes. comes, can she come? So here again in the U.S., our legislation is that uh, children are um, need parental permission until the age of 18. And I know that in Australia and the UK, you have something of the concept of Gillick competency, yeah. which we would translate as mature minor. In the US, for something like an immunization, uh, our mature minor statutes would rarely apply. And I say rarely because they're in some states, they've made exceptions for it. But basically, we would say that this is a parent's decision. And we only override parents when their decisions reach some threshold of abuse and neglect. And so the question is, is it abusive or neglectful? Yeah. And I wish I could say it is, except the fact is, is that we also know that at age 15, if she were to get COVID, it's most likely going to be a mild case. Mm -hmm. um, and if she were to get COVID, the, the biggest risk in a sense is almost is bigger risk that she infects her mother and her mother has a more serious case. So right now, while the fact is, is that one, it's going to most likely be mild. And the second is if the rest of the world were actually to get vaccinated, if we could get our vaccine numbers higher than the 70 percent that we are and we can get herd immunity, then we could protect here in that way. So yeah. at this point, I'm not willing to override the mom. Um, I don't think it's reached the threshold of abuse and neglect. OK, so so the words that you would use to Kira are... Uh, Essentially, because you, you, all of this might go on in the back of your mind, but Kira's sitting in front of you and she's coming on her own. And so at that first point, you'd say, no, I cannot give you this vaccine. So, so actually in the US, unless yep. it's for something called like a specialised consent statute issue, so an issue about um, contraception, uh, pregnancy, yep. mental health, or alcohol and uh, drug use disorders, we're not allowed to see her if she comes by herself. So the answer is I would not actually get to see her. She'd be stopped at the clinic doors and say, we need your mother's permission for you to even be seen by a doctor. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, before I go to um, another US-based commentary, I might flick to Lynn, who's muttering about um, some of this. <laughs> I and... am indeed muttering <laughs> behind my mask. Yes. Um... Well, but, but before you, but before you go to Lynn and before yeah. you let her mutter, yeah. um, I'm going to just, I'm going to defend the US in one sense. Yeah. I'm willing to change the line to 15. I'm willing to change the line to 14. What I'm not willing to do is to go by what you call Gillick competency. So this is what I want Lynn to address. Yeah. Because the fact is, is that when I agree with a child, I'll think she's mature. But mm -hmm. if Lynn were screaming, I don't want it, and was biting my nurses, then I would say she was immature. And if, Lynn, if Kira even just said, I don't want it because I don't believe the science, I would call her immature. So my concern about Gillick competency, it's more about whether the patient agrees with me than whether I really have a test to determine that she has maturity and competency, because I don't know what that test is. So now I'll throw it to you, Lynn. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll try and stop muttering, Claire, and speak more clearly. Um, yeah, but I am really surprised to hear that, the idea that you would uh, even, that you would need parents' approval even to see this uh, young woman, uh, because in my mind, the picture is uh, Kira 
goes to the vaccination clinic or maybe she comes to her general medicine outpatient appointment or turns up to her GP. She comes in, she says she wants uh, the COVID vaccination. Whoever she's seeing thinks that's a great idea um, and doesn't even necessarily ask, I think, if her parents or her mother are happy about this because the question is, is she able to give informed consent? So can she understand the pros and cons? Does she know why she's doing it? Does she understand that there are some potential risks that it doesn't confer full immunity, that she might still get an infection, she might still be able to pass it on? Um, and if she understands all that, uh, then she's able to give her own consent and her her, uh, her make her own decision and her parent is by the by, really. Um, and when I say that, I think I'm saying that both ethically and legally, but in the spirit of of speculating wildly, Claire, yes. I think I'd also want to say, even if there was some legal risk to the practitioner and really it would be legally safer if they had mother's signature on the consent form, I think the practitioner should take that minor legal risk in the interests of vaccinating Kira because there's lots of good reasons to do it, actually not just because she wants it and understands so, it. So can you tell me, though, uh, are you um, suggesting ethically the most important thing to consider is Kira's capacity yeah. and respecting that capacity yeah. as, as um, someone who's able to understand risks and benefits and yeah. uh, rather than um, thinking about the, the, the harms, I suppose, or the, I mean, or, or rather than thinking about um, the mother. So Yes, so I'm focusing on Kira, and now, yeah. now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking she has the vaccination, she goes home, does her mother know that she's had a vaccination? I don't know, why would you tell? Um, okay, so you have you have entirely um, separated just, Kira I from have. her mother, yep, and you, and that you think that's ethically justifiable for this situation. Yes, I do. In fact, I might be prepared to go a bit further than ethically justifiable and say ethically obligatory. I think it would be wrong to turn her away and say no, we can't vaccinate her because her mother says no. Okay. So, uh, can so I... sorry, Claire. If I can just put the question on the table, yeah. then to me the question is: Should the clinician even ask? Um, what do your parents think? Why are you here without a parent? Okay. Uh, Lainey, would you like to reply to that first before I go to Doug? Yeah. <laughs> I would if you saw my hand that was raised. Um, so first, I have to say that as a pediatrician, I'm going to be very practical here. Um, and, and I can take it to the theory as well. But as a pediatrician, the one thing I have to say is, well, Kira is my patient. I'm in a triadic relationship. This is not a... a, a a dyad of the doctor and the patient. This is the doctor, the patient, and the parent. Yep. I've probably known Kira's parents now for 15 years. If she has had a sibling, maybe 18 years. And we've developed a relationship, and that relationship requires trust. And for me to just decide that Kira's making a great decision and I, I think I should just respect her ignores the fact that I've been in relationship with the mom and that the mom and I are going to have to continue to make decisions with regard to Kira. Um, maybe in your country, personal, there are lots of differences. One, national health insurance. So 
Mom might not find out. Where in mm. my country, mom will get a bill, even ah, if the bill ah. is zero for COVID. <laughs> yep. Um, number one, but number two, mom also would have access to her her, her child's immunization records through mm. the electronic health records. Mm. So her Absolutely. mother would be able to find out, and it would be deceitful for me to say, "Oh, just because her mother's not here, I don't need to ask, and I don't need to see her." So again, I'm going to put real emphasis on the doctor-patient child relationship and say that in that role, I have an obligation to include families. And in this case, that would mean that I'm not going to do something behind mom's back, particularly when, um, again, I, I think that we haven't reached the threshold of abuse and neglect. Okay, interesting. Let's see what Doug's got yes, to say. Yes, Doug, would you like to weigh in here? Uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's I um, I am not that far from where Laney is. I, I, I there is a real legal barrier here um, yeah. with the COVID vaccine, and and I think the legal liability is maybe greater than it might be in a place like Australia, given the polarized climate in the United States and the um, rather vigorous uh, anti-vaccination uh, sentiment by some of our population. Um, I think an angry parent would probably uh, contact licensing authorities and potentially right. file a lawsuit. And, yeah. you know, under the law, as Lainey points out, it would be assault and battery. And yeah. that's, um, you know, it's a big risk for a clinician to take, um, you know, aside from all the issues related to, to trust and, and so on. So I think... You know, I would have to explain that to Karen. Now, now, I it, it's not that we can't talk to her, yeah. uh, but we really can't touch her. So Lainey is correct that, you know, if she comes into my office, I can't really examine her. I can't really prescribe unless, you know, part of the reason for a visit is um, is in those carve-outs. Because if she is there for a psychiatric condition, she's depressed, she's... Um, wondering about alcohol, she's there for sexually transmitted disease treatment or pregnancy prevention or those things, then I can actually see her. And, and you know, she brings this up. There's no reason I can't talk to her about it. But <clears throat> I really can't give her that vaccine without the parent's request. Um, now, now your, your wonderful audience who's having their own conversation on the side yeah. is worrying a great deal about one of the things Lainey said, which was, well, what about like a 14-year-old homeless person or you know, can they really not get care? And and I just want to expand on what Laney said to point out that, that it, it, it's complicated. And most states have, I think all states have an emergency provision that would allow us to see her for an emergency condition. So, you know, we, we really can't see her for um, minor things. If she came to my emergency department, under our laws, I would have an obligation if she's not there for an emergency. And, and we see these kids, the homeless kids all the time. If it's not an emergency, we make every effort we can to contact a legal guardian. And, and only if we are unable to do that, will we then do a screening examination um, to make sure that we're not, you know, um, there's not something more more important that we don't want to miss there. Mm. If it's a true emergency, I can see that child without parental permission, but I, mm. I have to kind of limit what I do to the emergency aspects of the condition. And a COVID vaccine doesn't cross that line right now. Right. 
I'm wondering if you were able to think of yourselves in an alternate America where the uh, laws about when a child is legally able to consent on their own were not so were not so strict. And if you just take an ethical lens to a child, 15-year-old, who's come in to see you off their own bat, formed a view about what they want, where do you sort of sit there from a sort of theory, ethical theory perspective? Laney. Well, I I, I want to put it in a broader context than just the healthcare perspective. I want to put it in a world perspective. A 15-year-old, and I I do want to address the the, um, comments coming from the audience. Yeah, I was going to They're all about non-intimate homes, and that's a really separate conversation. Let's assume that Kira is living at home, her parents are helping her, uh, financially supporting her, emotionally supporting her, and this is sort of one of their big disagreements. Because yes. if she were being an abused child, I think the arguments and the ethics behind it would be very different. Um, but I, I point out that, as I said, I'm totally willing to, to say, I don't like the idea of these individualized assessments because I think they, we don't have a scale on which to determine decisional capacity and maturity. If somebody in the audience can tell me about the MacArthur test, uh, and we do have this MacArthur competency assessment test. It's really not a very um, good test to understand both short-term and long-term perspective judgments and things of that sort. And it's, you know, it's been used in very, very structured environments. And I'm not convinced that um, in many cases that we'd be able to get five pediatricians in a room and all agree whether one child A was co- had decisional capacity or not, mm. particularly if it came about refusing life-saving treatments, for example. And so because of that, I'm going to say, pick your age. I don't care what it is, but if we're going to pick an age, then we should hold that child. We should give that child the respect for everything across the board. It makes no sense to me why we're going to say we're going to lower the age for healthcare decisions, but we're not going to lower the age for educational perspective. What if this 14-year-old comes in and says, you know what? I've decided that my goal in life is to be a TikTok performer, and I don't really need education, so I'm dropping out. We're not letting her. It's against the law um, and, and things of that sort. So I think the idea that we also wouldn't let her drive at 14, even if we thought she was really mature and probably going to be a better driver than most of us on the road. So once you start changing the age of, of decisional capacity, my answer would just be, why are we making this carve out for all of healthcare when you're not willing to make it for the rest of it? And if you are willing to make it for the rest of it, I think we're being foolish because we know from, from adolescent brain development that most of our brains are still developing in our early 20s. And mm. the idea that we would, in a sense, respect and idolize short-term decisional capacity rather than giving them and empowering them to have the opportunity to remain a child and therefore get all of the positive rights that don't come to adults would be a real shame. Mm. So I'm going to still say that um, I, I love the idea that she, that I agree with her that I would invite her to invite her mom to come in the room and we could talk some more and willing to look at all the data that mom wants to provide to me. But in the end, I'm still going to say that I have a doctor-parent-patient relationship. And for the person in the audience who said, but the parent isn't the patient, that's true. But the parent is in a dyadic relationship with their child that's been very formative and has helped Kira become the mature adolescent that she is. And I'm not here willing to put a knife through it as easily as uh, others might be. Okay. So that that's pretty clear. So, Doug, would you like to add anything to that? 
well, yeah, I mean, you asked about, you know, so it's not the U.S. context, but so what I would say is, you know, as a general rule from an ethical perspective, this is a low risk yeah. medical decision. And um, I think a 15 year old should be able to make this. And quite honestly, if I were in a position, I'm actually a strong advocate for legislatures passing laws that say children above a certain age, make it 14, make it 15, um, just like they can consent to birth control um, without their parents' permission, should be able to consent to vaccinations. Yeah, okay. Uh, this isn't the only vaccination we have this problem with. We have this problem with the um, human papillomavirus vaccine as well, and in some cases uh, the more standard vaccines because kids don't have any vaccinations and they want to go hiking and backpacking and they haven't had tetanus, you know, vaccines. And so um, it, I think we ought to add it to the carve outs to make it possible. And I think this is the kind of area that adolescents should have the ability to make decisions about. Yeah. But, so, but Doug, let me push you on that. Is it that they're more mature or is it that we agree with them? We know that the tetanus shot is really important if you want to go hiking. We know yeah. that if you have an elderly grandmother who you want to visit, getting the COVID vaccine is the right thing to do. So is yep. this really about capacity or is it about public health and that we agree with them? It's about public health. And, I, and I'm not no, saying it it's about capacity. I'm, I'm not convinced that a 13-year-old um, really fully understands uh, all the implications of pregnancy or those sorts of things. But we allow them to get treatment because... Um, we're allowing them to get treatment for things that are important to their health. And, and so there is a component of, yes, we agree with them, but it's a broad agreement. It's not, you know, um, me standing against a crowd. It's, it's very broad sort of public health agreement. But sadly, it is not as consensus as you're suggesting, right? We have less than 70% fully vaccinated. And look at Australia. They're doing much worse. Yeah. They had a whole different approach, but even now that they've opened up vaccines, they don't have consensus. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm talking about consensus in the in the scientific, medical, and public health community. Yeah, so I'm going to flick to Lynn. Yeah. <laughs> I just briefly want to clarify. I don't think it's entirely about. Um, Capacity, uh, capacity to make the decision. I do think there's a harm minimisation element. So I agree with Doug in relation to uh, contraception for a 13-year-old. It's not necessarily that a 13-year-old uh, fully appreciates all of the, the significance of that decision, but if they're having sex anyway and they're at risk of getting pregnant uh, and they want to use contraception to protect themselves from that, that's a good decision. We agree with it. Uh, I don't find that there's a, a problem in uh, supporting a decision that we agree with. Um, presumably we're agreeing because it's a sensible decision and reduces risk to the child. And I do think the public health angle here matters. Um, so in our context, this uh, care is trying to do what the government's telling it to do, protect herself and protect others by getting a vaccination. And to, to not allow her to do that puts her in... Um, anyway, does it put her in moral jeopardy? There's a big word. Um, because she can't even get to do what she thinks is the right thing to do for other people, let alone herself. Now, I'll stop and... But it does raise the question of what is the role of the clinician in, in facilitating, you know, public health measures? Laney, I'm feeling a certain sort of 
rigidity or, 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 or um, sort of loyalty to the philosophical truth that you have to have. If you're going to consent, you can consent to good things and bad things and it's, and it's even. And, and, of course, I think you know, lots of the clinicians will feel you know, happy enough with the asymmetry uh, that one might consent to things that are either you know in your best interest or minimise harm, as we've discussed, yeah. but not refuse things that are life-saving. Uh, and that's untidy and, in a sense, pure logic doesn't, if we want to follow it through, may not, um, mm. you know, sit comfortably. But I think it's, it's perfectly e- ethically acceptable and practical uh, in clinical yeah. uh, medicine. I'm going to go to the three questions that I posed here on the slide, um, and they might not be the right questions, but I, I think the answers that we've come to from our discussion so far, has Kira's mother reached the limits of her par- parental authority in relation to this, um, uh, in relation to Kira? And I'm hearing from the US perspective um, legally, uh, no, she hasn't. <laughs> She has got some authority still there and it's actually, um, you know, enshrined in law and that makes it a problem for the doctor, for the clinician. Does the GP need to evaluate Kira's capacity to consent for herself? Now, that one, I'm not so certain where you're exactly landing there because do you still have some obligation to evaluate Kira's capacity here? I think Doug started to refer to, well, or maybe Lainey, some middle ground here. There is, there are stuff we can do still, even though there's a line in the sand. Or no? I don't think so. You know, so the, as I said, so Doug and I are in a different place. In the emergency room, Doug can't send a 15-year-old away without at least making a, mi- a mild assessment that it's safe to do so. Right. In the clinic, she can't get into the clinic into the back room in the clinic without a parent consenting for her to come in. And that's an important difference because Doug needs to make sure that there's no urgent emergent issue that it would be unsafe. Mm. So our clinic, our front desk would say to her, we need your parents' signature. If this is a life or death issue, we'll transport you to the emergency room. But they would not bring her back to see me. Right. Um, well, but but again, but they wouldn't be bringing her back for Doug to have the COVID vaccine discussion. It would be, is there an emergency? So I, I don't think that yeah. there's this requirement because the fact is, I'm going to agree with you. Yeah. She has decisional capacity. That's necessary, but not sufficient yeah. for giving her the vaccine. Okay. Thank you. That's That makes it clearer. <laughs> Can I say? Yes. I nice but not necessary that she has capacity Um, and I wouldn't be thinking that we need to formally assess her capacity talk with her about it she seems to understand and she's doing something that is medically a good idea and is a strong public health recommendation uh, then we just go ahead because that's enough. I'm not asking very much, actually. The more I think about it, the less I want. So you, you're, you've got your eye on the outcome of this is good. doesn't really matter yeah. how we get there. Yeah. Okay. And I'm also thinking, what's it like for her if we say no? Because she's, like, she's potentially frightened, potentially really wanting to do the right thing for the community, wants to get back to school. Yep. What's it like to say no? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, you're being a consequentialist. Ah, oh, John. <laughs> Both um, overstep the mark. <laughs> I'm going to turn to Georgina. Um, just one thing um, that I'm picking up, Dr Erin Sharwood, 
makes a good point. She's struggling with the idea of uh, what constitutes emergency treatment or emergency care or the exceptional situations in which you would deal with the child directly. I guess what Erin is saying is that over time, non-emergency situations create increased risk and can turn into emergencies. And if you can sort of see that or anticipate that that's where it's heading, isn't there some sense of it? We had a case the other day, um, a hypothetical about a 14-year-old boy overdosed on heroin on the street, uh, was treated. The AMBO wanted to take him to hospital to get checked out, 14-year-old, serious drug, uh, slightly unusual situation. Uh, and the, the story went on from there. But just uh, just your your view on that, I guess, Lanny and Doug, the, the use of and the definition of emergency. Yeah, well, I suppose what we're doing here is trying to press whether there's... Uh, uh, the <coughs> Lynn's point, too, was it, it, are there some harms to this child for discounting her on a, on a technicality? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not an emergency. So, no, that's now, a different but... question, actually. So the first okay. question is... What is an emergency? Yeah. And we would use an imminent direct threat of harm. Yeah. And imminent is part of the issue. So you're right. Um, if it's not imminent and let's say it's hypertension that's not being controlled, eventually it's going to become a problem. Yeah. Uh, good news, bad news, it's going to become a problem after they've left my clinic because most people don't have, you know, hypertensive problems in their teens and 20s. But, um, but an imminent threat of harm. What, what our carve-outs is, and this gets again back to the chat, we do have in virtually all the states, although they differ exactly, but we have uh, carve-outs that children, uh, minors, are allowed to seek medical care for what we call specialized consent statutes. So uh, contraceptive pregnancy, sexually transmitted illnesses, mental health issues, drug and alcohol use, and misuse disorders. So, um, so those, we can see the child without parental permission, even without uh, parental notification. So we have a lot of those carve-outs. So that's why I want to stick to it. But your second point that you just asked us, which was um, the harm that we're going to be doing to the child by ignoring her. I understand that. Um, there are a lot of systems in our countries, and this I'm going to say holds in both countries, where a 15-year-old just doesn't have, the, you know, so doesn't have the same ability to be able to get maybe a, a driver's license, to be able to drink in a pub and things of that sort. And while we can say, but if they're mature, why shouldn't they be able to? I want to hit on the flip side that there's a real benefit of being a child in all of our countries in that we have a right to education. We have a right to health care. We have a lot of rights that we don't actually promise adults. And so I'm not willing to give up some of those positive rights for your negative rights of being able to go to the doctor and be left alone and not have to seek parental permission. So I, I just don't want us to forget that there are benefits of being a child and having the state being there to protect you as well. The phrase having your cake and eating it too is coming to mind, even yeah. though it's only breakfast time. I'd like to think that we could have, would both retain the good things about being a child because I'm very much in favour of allowing children to be children and not making them into adults before, it's, before they want to and before it's a good idea. Um, but I, I wonder if we can have a, you know... Have your cake and eat it too. I'm picking up on one comment and I'm missing heaps and I apologise about that. But Fiona Miles says, why is Lynn suggesting that she knows better about what's good for this child over and above her parent? Ah, good question. So I don't think I do. I'm believing ScoMo, actually. Oh, um, I'm believing our esteemed Prime Minister or maybe I'm believing um, our public health 
experts yeah. more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and our TGA. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case. In this case. And I'm assuming if I, if I were in the role of the clinician, I would have much more. Well, not, yeah, so I'm prepared to say, yeah, um, somebody knows better than the mother than does. Than the mother in this case. Yep. So, yeah. so if that's the case, Lynn, then we have an easy solution. The state can say that we have authorized all children over yes. the age of X mm. to be able to come to a state public yep. health clinic yep. and get the vaccine and take the doctor out. Uh, the yeah. doctor has a relationship with both the child and uh, the parent. Interesting thought, and yeah. I really want to emphasize how important that parent-doctor-patient relationship is. Yep. Um, and for all of you who are wondering, with all the parents, especially as I get to know them over the years, by the time the child hits two digits, I, so when they hit 10, I look at the parents and I say, you know, starting now, I'm going to meet with your child alone. And what we're going to talk about is going to be totally confidential. And the only reason I'm going to break that confidentiality is if the child threatens harm to self or others. And do you accept that? And I've had parents refuse, but they are rare. And so almost at every visit after the age of 10, I meet with the child and talk to them alone to try to make sure that, they're, one, they're safe, that, two, that their health care needs and their other needs are being met. And I couldn't do that if the parent thought that every time I, put the, I, let the, I kicked the mom out of the room that I was going to give the kid a jab of a COVID vaccine. So I need her trust. So that's a really nice segue, Lainey, to the next part of this or the next case because I think it starts to push the idea of I only interfere or, you know, uh, go against the parent where the child is, is at risk. So let's go to Kevin and he's exactly the same age, 15 years old, but he has intermittent protracted bacterial bronchitis um, his standard immunizations are up to date. He requires oral antibiotics one for one to two weeks, about three times a year. Uh, he doesn't have bronchiectasis, but at a routine follow-up after his most recent exacerbation, his GP offers him COVID vaccine, and Kevin's pretty keen to have that. But again, maybe it's the same mother, but she she's not really anti-vaccine, but she doesn't think there's enough data and Kevin's pretty worried about becoming unwell because he he knows and has experienced throughout his life these chest infections so where are you is this an exactly the same answer should we just move on from this or does this up the stakes in some ethically significant way what does Doug think Doug well I mean the equation changes somewhat because the risk I think I assume what you're trying to paint here is a picture of somebody who, if they get COVID, <clears throat> has an underlying condition where that has a much greater chance of putting him in the hospital and possibly even threatening his life. Hmm. Um, and so you're you're now talking about this, you know, group of kids who we've worried about from the beginning that have risk factors and um, are the most likely to end up in ICUs. And, and I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think I think you could make an argument that maybe that crosses the line. But, you know, as I pointed out two days ago, and making that assessment as a physician, let, let's say I do believe this crosses the threshold, still doesn't allow me to, to 
give him the vaccination. I, I, I then need to make a decision about whether I'm going to contact CPS and make a claim that this is medical neglect on his parents' part. Yeah. Um, or get a judge to issue a court order. And, you know, I, I'm trying to imagine that happening in my state, and I, I just I don't see it. I think it would be a lot of effort, and, and I would not – CPS would probably laugh at me and say we have bigger problems, bigger fish, more, you know, bigger fish to fry. And so there, is, there remains that legal liability mm. or, or problem. Would you be thinking that, you know, you need to do some work with the – that you need to be an advocate for, for Kevin with his mother? Oh, absolutely. Right. And I feel that way with Kira too, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, advocate in the sense that I, I really, I'm going to try to have as respectful a possible, as possible conversation. Yeah. And it's going to be a different conversation with Kira's parent than it is with Kevin's. Because with Kevin's, I'm probably going to be, I'll still be respectful. I'm not going to dismiss her concerns, the mom's concerns, but... I am going to be really blunt about about my experience with kids like Kevin, and they're the ones that end up in my ICU, and I don't want to see Kevin in my ER and have to intubate him. And so, I, you know, there are times where I am not hesitant to paint kind of a grim picture of what this might look like if you persist in your refusal. Yeah, yeah. Lainey, did you have any... Yeah. I, so I, I want to second what Doug says. First of all, I have actually argued in the literature about the importance of physicians providing what I'll call directive counseling. Yeah. Um, this whole notion that we're just supposed to say, you know, we think this is a good idea. What do you think? Absolutely not. It's I'm going to vaccinate your child and the mother's going to have to say no. And then I'm going to get into the conversation about why not. So I am very directive about certain things. And I think the COVID vaccine actually is one of those. Yeah. Um, I have not been successful in turning around any mother until yesterday. So I'm in a really good mood about that. And, but, and- um, but I've been trying for months and months. The, um, but so, yes, I will like Doug. And the one thing I've come to learn over 27 years of practice at the University of Chicago is giving statistics going to do nothing. I'm going to tell personal stories about yeah. the patient who didn't get the COVID vaccine who's in our ICU right now. And mm-hmm. that I'm, yeah, and I'm, the, my thoughts and prayers are with the kid. That's not enough. I got a vaccine for your child, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to really push and I'm going to, and I'm going to look at the parent and say, and with Kira's kid, Kira, I'm going to say to the mom, are you willing to let Kira kill her grandma? And how do you think her grandma's going to feel when she, you know, how do you think Kira's going to feel if she, if her grandmother dies because Kira had a very mild or even asymptomatic case and brought it into the house? And I'm going to make the parent making those hypotheticals real with me. And if the parent can still look me in the eye and say, still not interested, Dr. Ross, and they do it all the time, then we're done. But I'm going to give a real fight. And so was your success yesterday based on a fight? Oh, yeah. I mean, so I my four hour clinic went six hours yesterday. I'm fighting with parents left and right. Um, I have parents who don't want to have their child wear a mask because it's uncomfortable or things of that sort. So we're dealing with this. And the fact is, but again, I want to get to, you know, we don't hold parents to this perfect decision. So if Kevin, if Kevin's mom's not going to let me give Kevin the vaccine, I'm still going to talk about masks. And I'm going to talk, for example, about the value of wearing two masks. 
um, you know, a, a surgical mask as well as a cloth mask to make him better protected. Right. And I'm going to talk about maybe he um, doesn't want to play the trombone this year um, because it's going to be in a room, in the music room, and maybe he's going to give up that class and talk to the parent, mom and to Kevin about what we can do to make it as safe as possible for him, um, knowing that he's not getting the vaccine today. And I'm still going to make it that I'm going to try to make it so that they feel when they leave that they can change their mind without having to feel that I'm going to look at them and say, see, I told you so, mm. or that they're going to feel that they're uncomfortable now coming in, that our values are so discordant. Yeah. So again, because of the continuity of care that I practice, it's really important that I maintain that therapeutic relationship with both of them. Mm. And for all of you in the audience who keep saying it's all about the child, it is, except the child isn't an isolated island. The child is in relationship. And we need to think of our ethics. And this, I think you'll all agree with me, that we need to be thinking of about a much more communitarian, a much more in relationship ethic than we often do. And that happens particularly, has to start within the family. Mm. Uh, well, you've convinced me. I'll have that back. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because this conference is deciding with children and we, we've placed all of uh, a, a lot of our efforts on and thinking about how can we elevate and bring forward the child's view because they're developing into an adult. Lynn, would you like to comment? Yeah, but your, your comment's really interesting, Claire, because what's happening now is we're really thinking about the role of the parent which we haven't really talked about very much so far. And so I think it's fantastic to be having this discussion about the role of of the parent. And I guess in, in my mind, I'm thinking of the adolescent stepping forward and the parent stepping back, uh, you know, and ideally that happens nicely and we all agree. Mm. Um, but I guess I am seeing a place where somebody has to carve out the, play, the, the the space for the young person. If the parent's not willing to do it, then that's the role of the clinician or maybe it's the role of the state to, to make that that space. So I'm interested in the idea of carve-outs, mm. um, but it seems to me that um, the sort of carve-outs that Lainey was talking about are, are really about things that the child would want to keep private from their parents, not want their parent to know about. So sexual activity, drug use, maybe mental health. Or emergency. And then the emergency, I mean, if we're really going for emergency is your life's at risk right now, mm -hmm. then I don't think we're worrying about anybody's consent yeah. in the end ethically. We're just trying to yeah. save yeah. the life. Uh, which brings me back to a thing I've been thinking about for the whole conference, which is when we give space for the young person to make their own decisions and have their own discussions with healthcare providers, is that more about privacy than it is about uh, capacity and right to make your own decision. So, so this discussion has made that really stark to me. It, it's mm. bringing up the question in my mind of what do parents even have a right to know about their child, let alone direct what their child does? I, I think privacy is tied to it, but it's not just about privacy. I mean, we, if you use the treatment of sexually transmitted diseases, it, th th what we worry about is that if kids need their parents' permission they just won't come in and yeah. they'll remain untreated. Yep. Mm. And and that's because they're afraid their privacy won't be protected. Mm. But <clears throat> by giving them the right to consent, they're willing to come in, but only if it's tied to confidentiality. Yeah. So I do think the two are intertwined. Um, you know, if you think about the COVID vaccine, though, that's going to be 
kind of true of that, because if you've really got a parent who's opposed to vaccination, um, most of these kids want, I, I mean, I know a number of kids who want the vaccine. They don't want their parents to know yeah. if they get it. Yep. And, you know, right now that's really not possible, but that's what they would like. Mm. Um, so in some ways, I think it is pretty closely aligned mm. to some of these other things. So, so that's it. I and, think and that both that's one of the things I was thinking, Doug. If it's about privacy, why would we confine privacy just to the, to the drug taking and the, the, the sexual activity issues? Because young people want privacy in a whole range of, of fields. Treating someone's sexually transmitted disease might be as important to their health as giving them a COVID vaccine, particularly in, in Kevin's case. So again, for the, from the point of view of risk to the young person, I don't see a huge difference so I'd like to expand the carve-outs for you a lot. Maybe there so would be nothing left. <laughs> so I don't want to expand the carve-outs as much as you do, and I'll tell you why. Um, the carve-outs, again, I, I think we're making very clear, has nothing to do with capacity and maturity. It's basically, it has to do with the fact is we fear that these children will avoid getting care at a good time so that they'll end up waiting so rather than getting it when they have a mild sexually transmitted infection, they'll wait until they have pelvic inflammatory disease, which could lead to infertility, et cetera. Mm. So we're doing it because we're afraid that if they have to tell their parents, they're going to avoid care. So we're already making a very important value judgment here that what's really important to us is that we get these kids the care that we believe is right for them, regardless of their parents. Yep. And I get that. And I think I am going to be say that I'm totally supportive of having some carve-outs, but I would keep them very limited because I'm still going to say that in the end, the child lives in the family. And again, I, so those in the audience, we could have a separate conversation about the child who's, quote, home alone or on the streets alone. But for the child who lives in a family, we need to be in relationship. So I want to get to your point, Lynn, about how we want the child to be stepping more forward and the parents stepping back. That again is a value judgment. It's yes. a way. It's a value about what's the right way to raise a child. It is, and I'm very humble about that because I don't know what the best way is. I picked one way to raise my children, and I was a very liberal parent, and basically tried to leave the room when my kid was ten, and she grabbed my ankle and said, "You're not going anywhere." My kid was so scared of a pediatrician; it was great. Um, <laughs> actually, both of them were, but. Um, but that was my choice. And it would have been very different if somebody told me, oh, no, your child is now X, get out of the room and stay out, and I'm going to jab or do whatever I want without your permission. Mm. Right? So I think it's really important to realize that parents come from many different communities. Mm. I live in a country which is finally dealing with some of our structural racism, our structural misogyny, our structural, we can talk about all the different isms in this country. And we're first starting to get there. And the idea that you're going to tell me what the right way to raise my child mm. is, is, mm. is really going to be problematic. Mm. That they're going to be very different communities where they're going to be more authoritarian. And maybe they have a good reason to be. Because they don't feel that their child is safe when they leave the confines of their house and things of that sort. And mm. so we have a lot to do at a society level before you start telling me that I have to be making all these decisions with the child and excluding that parent. Mm. Um, I actually agree, and I do feel really uncomfortable about the idea of telling people how to parent. Um, so that leaves us back to Doug's limit of, of um, 
is the only time you can tell them when there's a harm that's objectively yeah. quantifiable. I'm going to move off this case in a minute, but I was just thinking back to Kira, who's there because she loves running and she wants to keep running, and that's really important to her, versus Kevin, who's more at risk because he's got this condition. And is one one reason more valuable than another to sort of take on board yeah. the child's position? So Kira misses out on a good thing, arguably, yeah. thing she enjoys, Yeah. whereas Kevin's at risk of getting really sick. So you might yeah. say a foregone benefit matters less than risk to physical health. Yes. So yeah, I, I'm not sure where you're going to take that. If, the, if you're going to take it where I would take that distinction, which mm. is, so I'm going to fight less with Karen's mom, Kira's mom, and yeah. I'm going to fight a lot harder yeah. with Kevin. That's what I was the wondering. The answer is yes. Okay. If the answer is, therefore, that Kevin reaches the level of abuse and neglect, I'm not going to agree with you. Yeah. But I, I would add to that. I, I do think we have a tendency to underplay some of the value of, and I think we've learned that, at least in the United States, where we've had kids out of school for a year. I don't think we fully appreciated just how important that is to their self-esteem, mm. to their mental health, to, every, I mean, their physical health and, and everything. It, it's not just that she likes to run and it's not just that this is a favorite activity. She, there, she probably has some self-esteem tied up in there. It's, it may be helping her more with her mental health than we realize. Mm. It's keeping her fit and it's part of our identity. And I think, I think sometimes we underplay the value of that and the harm of taking it away from somebody. So I, I would just caution, you know, making this too, this distinction too black and white. I, yeah. I, I do think we can do a lot of harm to kids with, you know, by removing some of these activities. And yeah. School yeah. was a great example. John? I just wanted to, to take up Laney. I mean, I think overall we're... I feel a sense in, in lots of ways we're in mostly in agreement, furious agreement really and um, a, a sense is a different legal framework that perhaps sets us, sets us apart. And I agree, Lainey, you don't want somebody telling us how to parent and there are so many dimensions to parenting. But, you know, if we think of carve-out, I think, you know, healthcare is a very separate and distinct part of life and it's got its boundaries uh, in lots of ways. And so... You know, lots of parents are unfamiliar with medicine. Lots of parents are uncomfortable. Lots of parents don't understand. They don't know the science. And I think we're seeing that in this uh, vaccine refusal case. And lots of parents we see, and perhaps it's because we work in the ethics domain, we see conflict and disagreement and poor decisions, often based on poor parenting. And so in some ways, uh, you know, I guess as I get increasingly older and the parents get younger, I'm, I'm feeling sort of parentalist towards the parents, not in so much in telling them what to do, but potentially in guiding them. And there is evidence. And, you know, Victoria Miller has done s some work in terms of finding out what happens when we decide, you know, with decisional decision-making involvement. Mm. And, and so, uh, and there's science. And so I think we have to purely say it's, all just values. Hmm. Um, but I do agree that we need more evidence. Yeah. The carve-outs that we've talked about in the U.S. are basically all public health carve-outs. Uh, yeah. When you say that medicine has its limits, I wish I believed that. 
everything has been, we've medicalized everything. We've, in this country, because of how we spend dollars, we've medicalized poverty. We've medicalized obesity. We've medicalized many things, including whether kids attend school or not. And because of that, we've actually um, lost the ability to keep it sort of very narrow and saying what's medically best for the child. And so I'm a little nervous when you say, you know, some poor parent, poor parenting. Maybe, but they haven't reached abuse and neglect. And the fact is they say maybe, because maybe through that adversity, the kid's going to do something incredible when they get older. Probably not. I get it. But I'm not here to be that judge. And I just, you know, I'm just not the first. I'm, not, I'm living in a glass house. I'm not throwing stones on this one. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think I'm throwing stones either, but I guess trying to you know, look for a better way. Yeah, for, for for me, it raises real questions about the the sort of scope of the role mm. of the clinician in this space. Actually, mm. um, so we're flipping between the role of the parent, um, the rights of the child, and the role of the clinician, which is and really important that you acknowledge that the parents have a much broader role for their child it's not just about making health it may be religious reasons it may be cultural reasons it even may be financial reasons why they're making one decision over another the doctors when we talk about best interest which is a term if anyone knows my work i hate but the only thing that a doctor or a nurse or any other healthcare provider should do is look at a child's medical best interest we have no right to make judgments about any other part of their best interest, which means we should rarely be able to override because the fact is we don't know what's best for a child, even if we know what's medically best. I'm going to move to the next case on that point. And it's about medical care, and uh, I think it goes to the heart of really the tussle we're having, which is figuring out uh, relationships between clinicians, parents and the child. So Elise has cystic fibrosis. She's 10 years old. She's been fairly well until now. But in the past four years, she has started to have increasing numbers of hospitalisations. She loves school. She's involved in the junior debating team. She absolutely hates coming into hospital. In the past year, it's become difficult to obtain venous access to, to deliver IV antibiotics. Elise was hospitalised four times last year and three times the year before. So I don't know that she has been fairly well until the age of 10. Um, That sounds like quite a lot. Anyway, she stayed an inpatient for 10 to 16 days for each visit. Dr Freya has been her consultant uh, paediatrician since she was born and she knows Elise and, and her family really well and has a good relationship with them. Now, all along, Elise's parents have been concerned that Elise not feel different from other children. They haven't wanted her exposed to too much information about cystic fibrosis, especially about the future. And they generally prefer that Elise doesn't attend, actually, for any discussions about her condition, except for what she needs to know in order to help in her day-to-day care. And Dr Freya's gone along with the, the parents' request to discuss major aspects of her condition without Elise present. And um, although this isn't getting straight in, but but do you agree with with that? Is is anyone feeling uncomfortable even at, at this point? 
So, you know, you've got a child. And in fact, John, I'd be sort of interested in your view because you've, this is really day-to-day work for you. If, if up until the age of 10 parents say, look, I'm not bringing, she's at home, I mean, except for when you need to examine her, but have the conversation with us about where things are going. Thanks, Claire. I mean, it's actually got e- easier for, for this to happen now with uh, Zoom consultations for, yeah. for healthcare and so much of what we do uh, does rely on the on the history and not necessarily dramatic findings on physical e- yeah. e- examination. And we do have parents uh, who don't really tell their kids what's going on for a whole variety of reasons. Kids don't really know they're coming to the hospital for a CF clinic and really understand CF. We work really hard and is part of our protocols, if you like, are for our wellbeing team to spend time with the kid and family to understand what their knowledge of, of CF is and we see that as part of uh, respecting the child, empowering the child and working towards that longer goal of an independent medical decision Except maker. Except the parents just don't want you to do that. No, and we get we get that and I, yeah. and I think that that is, uh, is wrong and that's unfair on the child and I don't think that's in the domain of family Okay. Um, I, I, the rights of the the parents to withhold information about the child. Obviously, what's shared with the child is is um, you know age appropriate. But heavens above, she's a debater already. Someone's pointed that Although out. Someone and, has pointed out she's a young debater. I well, that. you know, anyone with daughters, they debate from the moment they're babbling. Yeah. And. Uh, this is different from yeah. that, from how you raise your your kids and what religion and what. What school and so you're leaning towards the parents really you wouldn't really feel comfortable it, Dr Freya's gone along with it they're doing well you, you know Dr Freya she's working towards trying to get the parents to come round I suspect but she, the parents are doing their child a very big disservice okay um, Lainey or Doug do you do you have any comments on on this just first point. I agree mm. they're doing the child a very big disservice. Yep. Um, yep. Whether it gets to abuse and neglect is going to be another issue. Um, so, but I, I want to say a few things about that. This is one where parents, first of all, my heart goes out to these parents. They're having a really hard time. I read this case and I say, these parents need help. I, I know we're supposed to be at a conference that's focusing on the child, but I want to focus on these parents. They are really struggling. And in a sense, Dr. Freya is not doing due diligence unless, I mean, so right now as a general pediatrician, I have to do depression screening, I have to do tobacco screening on parents, I have to do all these things. And I keep thinking to myself, I'm the child's pediatrician. I don't know how to take care of adults. Why am I doing this? And the answer is because I need healthy parents in order to be able to take care of their children effectively. And this is one where these parents are struggling and we haven't addressed that issue. Um, That would be my first point. And having really pushed the parents about their own mental health issues, if that didn't get them to start thinking about the harms that they might be doing to their child, the next thing is I would actually then recommend that they read an incredibly good and really old book by Bluban Langner, which is called The Private World of Dying Children, which is a story about kids with cancer from the 1960s, where the success rate was dismal. And these kids watched their friends and, and their peers die. And she was, an, uh, I think she was an anthropologist. She might have been a sociologist. And all she did was basically talk to these kids. And what she learned was these kids would say, I'm dying. My parents aren't ready to handle it. So they would talk to her about their impending death. 
And they would say, but when mom comes in, let's talk about the fact that I've agreed to be a pumpkin for Halloween or something like that, because the kids knew that they had to protect the parents. And I would push any parent who reads that book would turn around and realize that they're abandoning their child by doing this, that the child is not sitting there thinking, oh, everything's okay. That's why my, my parents go to my doctors without me. And the parents really need to be educated on this. They are harming their child. I agree. Mm. Given all of everything I've just said, am I willing to call it abuse and neglect? I don't think so. Okay. So, uh, Lynn, so it's within the zone of parental discretion. Do you agree with that? Uh, yes, at this stage it is because uh, there is an immediate... So there's no significant harm to Elise at this stage, although I would be concerned about what might happen in the future. But coming back to, to Lani's point about telling parents how, how to parent, this seemed to me a really clear example of a clash between um, allowing parents to parent the way they want to parent... But then when they move into the healthcare system, we start to, it starts not to fit with our paradigm. It's we have a, parenting, is it? In a sense. well, it is because their, their view of how to parent is essentially to protect their child from bad things. So well, I think just we're as, framing this up though as the, the, the you know, uh, grief reactions, guilt reactions, all sorts of reactions. So I think in the parents, in sorry. the parents, yeah, and you know, I know absolutely share with that Laney and the commenters in the chat. Do we need to help? The, you know, the way to advance this is to help the parents. But knowing some of the cases we have, we we rarely rarely achieve that, yeah. and it's only yeah. when the kids are yep. 16, 17, 18 and and have a greater independence and the capacity they break yep. free of. They break free of that. So, is it? Is it? So it's not I'm, really parenting. I'm going to go to Doug, but it, I'm, what I'm hearing is there's there's parenting and there's health parenting. Yes. Are we distinguishing here between health supporting? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a really good uh, way of thinking about it. Yeah. Be, let's see what Doug's got to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't disagree. I, I think it isn't within the zone of parental discretion. But you know, several people in the chat. Um, Charlotte and Monica just have pointed out basically what Bluebon Langner found, which is that kids know it, it, it's it's um, and to some degree, to a great degree, you do them a disservice and you do them harm by not allowing them to have people they can talk to about what they're feeling and expressing because they pick up on the body language of their parents and they know something's wrong and and often what they imagine is wrong. Is, is far worse than what actually is wrong because their interpretation of the fact that all the adults in the room seem to think it's important enough to keep secret suggests that this is horrendous. And sometimes it is, but sometimes not as badly as the child imagines. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from a practical perspective, I'm not going to call this neglect. I'm not going to call CBS, but I'm going to really try to work with the parents to you know, get them to understand that this may not be doing their child a service, that, that you know, opening up the conversation with them could be really important to their child. I yeah. also want to say that Blue Bond Langner's book was written in the 70s. In 2021, if any parent thinks their kid hasn't gone on the <laughs> Internet to figure out what's wrong with them, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's so and I would point this out to the parents that they're just that they need to understand their child knows and their child is being in a sense abandoned to be alone with their illness because their parents can't cope and can't help them hmm. and the parents need help for that and it's not about blaming or accusing the parents the parents need help 
Hmm. And okay. uh, let me just add, because several people are alluding to it in the, in the um, chat, that um, if we're talking about a hospitalized child, part of what I'm going to say to parents is, look, <laughs> there are going to be dozens, if not hundreds, of people taking care of your child over the course of this hospitalization. The odds that somebody doesn't say something to your, your child that you don't want them to is very slim. And none of us can guarantee that that's not going to happen. You know, somebody's going to let it slip or somebody's not going to know that this is a secret and say something. And um, it might be better if you had that conversation with your child now than having them find out because somebody slipped. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of a case that we had, a clinical ethics case about exactly this, a, um, a child where the parents were were quite um, firm about not talking about their child's um, worsening condition in front of the child and would ask people to step out. And although this sounds really sensible, uh, what you're suggesting, actually it was really hard for clinicians in hospital to override parents because of their state of grief or their reactions, just the the high-stakes nature of changing or, or pushing them forwards when they weren't ready to be there. So, Claire, if we're thinking of, of the same situation, yeah. those parents were present 24 hours yes, a day was just... guarding their child from the truth. Yeah, and so bringing in um, protective services is not an option, in, in, really. That would just cause, you know, more grief and uh, mayhem, really, at that point in hospital. So it was very distressing for, for staff, mm. I recall. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it sounds sensible in theory, and I think we're all in agreement. Yeah, it gets back to trust is vital. Kids have trust with the parents, kids have trust with us. Mm. And, 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 you know, it goes in that, that three-way circle and this mm. just, it, it unravels, it always does, and trust is blown and that's in yeah. poor interest. And that's where, I guess as an experienced clinician, having seen it all unravel over the years at yeah. various times, sort of bringing that experience, now you can package it up as maternalism, paternalism, parentalism, or clinician leadership, or just, you know, what they're paying me for, as it were. It's my experience. So yeah. this, it's hard to make it happen. But at least there. And of course, there are two conversations here, Claire, that you've described in this situation. And so one to the child isn't about emphasising you know, how badly things are going and that she's going you know, to die soon, but emphasising the importance of the procedure that we need to do in child appropriate language with yep. her trust, as Rachel and Ollie pointed mm. out last night. Yep. And then potentially a, a conversation that's a little more adult with her, with her parents. Yeah, yeah. But I want to, can I push you, John, a little bit? Because you talked about the trust that the child needs and the parents need. Uh, the child, the, 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 I, I just want to emphasize that one of the reasons in that case that was just being described that the parents are at the bedside can be partially denial, but it could also be that they don't trust us, right? right. So we have to get back. I just still want to realize mm -hmm. that the parents are also, in a sense, really hurting they're also feeling as victims, and it's not just about the child. And I just want to keep us focused on the fact that pediatrics, it's with the child. I totally support that. But it's about families, and you cannot separate this child from the family. And I don't think, Eleni, we're trying to separate this child from the family. What we're actually trying to do is build a, a better 
uh, more truthful, if you like, family arrangement. But not here. all families are truthful. Yes. And this again gets yeah, to yeah. you want them truthful in medicine, but they may not be truthful in other aspects, yes. or they yeah. may well, be very truthful in other aspects. Then and I would argue they're bad. There's a cultural component that I don't know. But and I guess. I'm just not willing to impose my view yeah. on them. Well, I think if they're bad, um, I think a little judgment is probably if they're, uh, <laughs> you know, harming others and uh, holding up uh, bakery shops and all sorts of things and they're bad people, I think um, we can try and understand the social arrangement that are, uh, helped them arrive there. But I think um, the point is I'm trying to help them be better... Pa- well, I'd like to help them yeah. be better parents in the interest yeah. without trying to be... Oh, parentalistic to them, get a better outcome for the kid. Now I'm going to go to Doug. Yeah, and and I certainly don't want to get in between Blaney and John right now. Um, but 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 on, I did want to make one other point, and and this speaks to um, to some degree the moral distress that providers feel in these situations, which can be extraordinarily hard on nurses and and others when they're being asked to sort of participate in in what they consider to be you know, a dishonest activity. And, you know, one thing I always tell them is that, that I, you know, I think in many, in some ways we probably have to honor the parents request not to be more, more forthcoming, but, but the rule I have, and, and, and I share this with others is, but, and I tell parents this, I will not lie to your child. So that's a line I'm not going to cross for you. So if your child asks me point blank, do I have cancer? I won't answer that question, but I will tell them you're going to have to talk to your parents about that because I am not going to say no in that case. And you don't want me to say yes. So the only option for me is to say you need to talk to your parents about that. And I'll let the parents know that it's it's sort of, you know, mm. you know, I, I, I think they need to take some responsibility to. To, uh, for those savvy children who are going to ask that question point blank to be willing to take some of the blowback. It is interesting that when, when parents come into the health space, although we're not, we don't want to sort of change them as parents and we, we shouldn't be wanting to do that, and yet the expectation subtly or, or overtly changes about their parenting? Look, I find this really challenging and puzzling to think about because I'm holding these two ideas of allowing parents to parent in the way that they think is right and and, uh, wide boundaries Mm. on that. But Mm. on the other hand, they've come into a healthcare setting where professionals have their own sense of what's right and and particularly, uh, you know, Doug's comment about I'm not willing to lie, which I think is a very common sentiment. Uh, amongst healthcare professionals, that's about your own integrity, and, but that's bumping up against the parent's sense of the right way to parent, and I do find those hard to, to reconcile sometimes. Mm. I, I want to push back a little bit, Lynn. People aren't coming into the healthcare system necessarily because they want to, Absolutely. right? It's yep. not, and, and so it's not like we're inviting guests in and yep. sort of like, <laughs> okay, you're in my house, you're going to play by my rules. Particularly in Australia, where healthcare is a nationally funded and things of that sort, this is all of you in this together. And the idea that they're coming in and they're bumping up against our values—no, we all share values. And what you're dealing with here is a disagreement on how best to deal with this child. Now, we have a lot of data to say that it could harm the child. We need the parents to understand that. 
And that's important. I get it. But I think until we get past the fact that these parents are really suffering and we're not giving them the proper support that they need, we're not going to be able to get them to be able to talk to their child. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that, that's why I find it difficult, yeah. I guess, because those, th- those things bump up for me. And there's, uh, so it's a source of this. I think sometimes this is a genuine ethical dilemma. Lots of things that people say are dilemmas aren't. Sometimes and this is, is to me approaching genuine ethical mm. dilemma, some of these situations. What happened in this case is that Dr Freya is starting to uh, now suggest that a port for Elise would be better. To It would enable her to avoid long hospital stays. And, you know, she wouldn't have to have as many admissions either, quicker to get hospital in the home. And Elise's parents are against her having a port. They don't like the idea or their stated reasons. They're worried about this sort of hardware and the appearance and um, and they think this is just a bad patch. She's going to be okay. She doesn't need this. Um, Dr Freya's really starting to worry with what's already been suggested, that these parents are just not able to cope with where Elise's illness is at and perhaps they're, they're panicking. So I'm going to move to the next one. And the questions here are, you know, I think they're the same sort of questions. Should should Elise know about the option of a port? Should she be the decision maker? Should she have a say? And I don't know, I think we've sort of discussed a lot of this, but do, do you have a, another point to make, Lynn? Will you... Well, look, I, I know we've only got a couple yeah. of minutes and I wonder if this might be the, the last point that yeah. we discussed, but I'd be really interested to hear what Doug and Laney think about this now that there's a specific option on the table. Um, a port's a medically good idea. Parents don't want it. Nothing has been discussed with Elise so far. She might know about ports, I take Laney's point, but nothing's been overtly discussed with her. So can we let this opportunity go by and not talk to Elise about this because her parents don't want her to even know that it's an option? Laney and then Doug, maybe? Not get, Getting a port is better than not having a port. I'll agree with that. But again, is it a reaching abuse and neglect? Mm. Probably not yet. Every time doctors tell me that there's no place to put a line, they always find it. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not convinced. But um, this gets back to Doug's point. I agree with Doug. And one of the things I tell parents in this type of situation is, I won't lie to your child. So what if this child came and said, can't I have a port? This way I wouldn't have to get stuck so many times. Uh, I would tell the parents, if the child brought it up, I would discuss it. And um, I wouldn't say, no, that's something for just for you, uh, your parents and I to discuss. So, um, so that's just one possibility that might happen. But the fact is, is again, we, we failed this family by not getting them on board. And I am not willing to make this the issue because if she says that she wants it, I get it. And we decide she has Gillick competency, I get it. It's necessary. It's not sufficient. In the end, it's the parents who have to consent to the surgery because something bad can happen in the surgery. And then what, right? The Mm. parents are the ones who make the decisions and they're the ones who have to be, in a sense, the ones who have to deal with all the outcomes, both good and bad. And I'm not willing to take this kid to the operating room just with her permission. Okay. Doug. Yeah, I I agree with Laney. I mean, certainly, you know, on the point that you you can talk to her about it, but she she's still not the decision maker and you're not going to take her to the OR and I doubt you're going to be able to get a 
court order to make it happen unless there are some other circumstances. But I, I am bothered by not sharing this option with her. And, and, and I think, you know, I would have a pretty pointed discussion with the parents that they're basically denying their child some pretty important benefits, what she may perceive as important benefits in choosing not to offer this option. I mean, there's, it, it may look better. It's going to be less painful getting wine started, which may be creating great distress for her. And so I'm not going to let them, you know, just make the decision and then move on. I, I, I think I'm going to probably, you know, make sure they really understand what they're potentially depriving their yeah. teenager of. Doug, can I just ask you how far you, you might take that? Would you wait for Elise to ask about a port, as Lainey suggested? No. no. Well, I wouldn't wait to have this conversation with her parents. And I, I will say I'm deeply disturbed by not having this, being able to have this conversation with her because mm. the parents won't let me. Um, but does that... That uh, really bothers me. But, uh, but sorry, Doug. It, it sounds like you are reluctantly accepting that you can't talk to Elise about it without, if her parents tell you not to. You're bothered by it, but you have to do what they say. I, I feel, I do feel that way, but, but with the caveats we've talked about, which is I'm not going to lie to her. Yeah. Hmm. If she wants me to, if she knows people who have ports and asks me questions about them, I'm going to tell her about them, just like Laney would. Hmm. This has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for your contributions to this conference and for joining us. It's been wonderful to have you. That was Professors Lainey Ross, Doug Diekema and Lynn Gillam working out the place of parents in adolescent medical decision-making. The 12th National Paediatric Bioethics Conference was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary and the Humanity Foundation. This podcast was prepared by the Royal Children's Hospital Creative Services with help from Dr Georgina Hall. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a rating and share it with your colleagues and friends. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference held each September, look us up on www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics, be inspired. Mm-hmm.